podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So hello there and welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Once again, my name is Adam Burns and I'm your host for this episode. And joining me once again, my co-host and co-founder of the DNF1 F1 podcast, it's Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing? You had a good week so far? Yep, going well, mate. Um, bit strange uh, coming into a Sunday without a race being on, but um, we've been spoiled lately. So yeah, but I'm, I'm good. Let's... Uh, a few things to discuss today so let's get um, let's get getting on and cracking on with it shall we well of course quite right to point out of course it's not a race week this week of recording which is a shame and as you're right in mentioning we've been blessed with a lot of grand prix back to back and we're due for another triple header very very soon but of course it's the indy 500 this week and uh i'm not going to go into that too much because that's happening today um as we're recording that's just in a few hours time are you going to be watching it courtney is there anyone in particular you're going to keep your eye on the race i mean i mean the obvious one is um fernando isn't it and obviously the mclaren team yeah i mean because uh, as you know mclaren are kind of my second team for various reasons so i want to see them do well but they're quite far back from if i, if I remember rightly they're not close to the front are they yeah so, so fernando is on i think row eight on the grid because uh he qualified automatically there was 33 runners in the event for qualifying so by that logic all 33 runners were going to qualify no matter what so it's a bit of a strange one but nonetheless Fernando was in it this year other than unlike last year where he didn't qualify he said that his car is expecting to do a lot better in the race so we'll have to keep an eye out for him of course there's a few other Formula 1 drivers in Marcus Ericsson as well another Formula 1 driver uh, Max Chilton was involved as well he's going to be at the back but um I mean, thinking about the race, not too much. I'm kind of expecting perhaps uh, Andretti to perhaps win, or maybe Scott Dixon, uh, or maybe Simon Pagano, last year's winner, might have a chance. But Takuma Sato as well, forgot to mention him, uh, former winner of the Indy 500. It's He has a lot of F1 drivers or former F1 drivers in that field, and uh, this will certainly be Fernando's last opportunity before... He goes to the Renault team in 2021, so he won't be able to compete. He already said that he's not going to be competing in the Indy 500 whilst he's got his Formula 1 commitment. So for the next two years after this one, Fernando, this is going to be his last chance to get the Triple Crown, um, which has only been done by uh, Graham Hill, I believe. So let's um, move on to the main topics at point in hand. So what's been going on in the news this week? First things first, guys, it's the uh, Concord Agreement, the big old agreement. Uh, I'm not sure if it's named after the chartered plane um i might have to look up that i should probably should have done that before we started recording this episode so a bit of a full par on my part but nonetheless the concord agreement was signed on the 18th just this week and uh it's an important agreement guys for those of you that don't know what the concord agreement is long story short it's a confidential tripartite deal between the teams formula one and the fia that sets out the financial terms on which participants compete in addition to the sports governance Basically, the long story short is that this is the agreement that they will sign in order to compete in Formula One. And of course, it weighs down the financial elements and the sporting elements on this to make sure that everyone's able to compete. And this agreement was significant, Cornu, because of course, this entitles the teams now to be able to compete in the sport 
up until 2025, starting from next season. And there's a few parts of this agreement that are quite significant to how the sport is going to be governed in the next few years. For example, the budget cap that's been alluded to a lot and has been brought up a lot in recent years, many years, I think the big frustration for a lot of teams, in particular the the smaller teams and the independent teams, is that the wealth of revenue is predominantly shared or the lion's share of it goes to the top three teams in Red Bull, Mercedes and Ferrari. Fortunately, in this agreement, from what we understand, there are going to be new rules in place to make sure that this revenue is spread out a bit more evenly than it has been before, in addition to enforcing that budget cap in future years. So hopefully this is going to create an environment where the sport now is going to be operating on a more equal platform, where some of the smaller teams will be able to try and spend a bit more money maybe not too much to develop their parts but more importantly it's going to allow the it's going to force the bigger teams to downsize their operations and spend less money which means that it should create a pecking order that's a lot more closer than what we've seen in the last decade or two I've just just had a fear just come to my head do you reckon this um this agreement this particular agreement has come up in this um you know latest concord agreement do you reckon there could be some connection between this and the um, the takeover at Williams? In part, and there is a, that is a good point, um, I think it was important for Williams to secure their future, which they have done now, and of course we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, it's always a good time to secure new financial investment into the mm. team and ownership into the team at a time where the rules and regulations have changed. And you're absolutely right. I think perhaps this was something that was in the pipeline for some time um, with Doralton Capital, who are the new owners of Williams, as of um, Friday the 21st of August. And they were probably looking at what the regulations were going to be, what the terms of the agreement was in terms of the financial element, which has obviously encouraged them to seek investment into this team. I mean, after all, this is is a US-based private investment firm. So they're going to be more than in a position to basically look through the agreement and make sure that they're happy with the financial stipulations and how that's going to affect and benefit Williams as an entity in Formula One, which would in turn benefit them for their investment. So I think it's a good point. I think that's one of those things that perhaps if it didn't go according to plan, that Williams may still be looking for a new buyer. But as I said, we'll we'll probably talk a bit about that a little bit later on in this episode. I think... What's important to probably raise the first questions, Courtney, is the reaction to this. Now, the agreement itself, the deadline was the 31st of August, so we haven't quite hit that yet. But Liberty Media and Formula One set out a deadline of the 12th of August and put forward monetary incentives, so basically a payment up front to all of the teams that signed up and committed to this agreement by the 12th of August. Now, one team that wanted some legal terms ratified and sort of tidied up was Mercedes. So that deadline got pushed back a little bit to the 18th, by which time everybody had signed up to the agreement. So first things first, that's fantastic news for the sport. It's something that, as a fan, I didn't think would be possible, most particularly during the Bernie Eccleston days. But we've got something here. We don't know what the, obviously, the some of the finer details are but what we do know is that it looks like the sport is going in the right direction at long last to ensure a more level playing field for a lot of these teams and and overall a more competitive and exciting sport for the fans which is what everybody wants to see yeah it's it's been it's, it's it's been a long time since we've seen a truly competitive season i mean 
2000, I reckon 2010, I'd say, last season where it went to the wire between, well, three different teams, wasn't it, 2010? Since then, it has been one team pretty much dominating, so a competitive season is definitely long overdue. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I think it kind of reminds me of uh, 2012 where we had, I think it was seven different winners in the first seven races. That's right. Until obviously Fernando Alonso was the first double winner in Silverstone. But um, yeah, I mean, that was a crazy season. Of course, we don't want to see complete randomness. I think we should clarify that we want to see some teams rise to the top. We want to see some of the big teams establish themselves. But we want to see a situation where you don't just turn up to a Grand Prix weekend and the race winner in previous season was likely going to come from one of the big three in Red Bull, Ferrari or Mercedes. Even now these days, it's probably one of two cars with the exception of Verstappen in Red Bull um, this season. So this is a good sign. I think we should look at a few things in particular. First of all, Ferrari have secured quite a lot of things that we uh, that surprised me. They managed to retain some financial bonuses that they get for their their contribution to the Formula 1 World Championship in it as a whole and also their historical significance to the sport. I think you and I can agree that Ferrari more than anybody else in almost any sport carry a weight of significance to them that if you were to remove that from the sport the sport suffers quite a lot. I mean it would never be uh, Formula One would exist without Ferrari. It can do, and they've always teased at this idea in a negoti- as a negotiation tactic to try and remove themselves from the sport to get them to play ball. But the sport does suffer without Ferrari. But of course, it would still carry on. But um, a, a, f- a few things in particular, I probably would note. This obviously the financial uh, rewards that Ferrari are still able to hold on. But the most important one that surprised me was the power of veto, the veto power that Ferrari have managed to keep. Now. For those of you that don't know what I mean by that, in short, it basically means that any rule changes that are proposed and that are voted upon have to be agreed by a certain number of teams. As of now, it used to be a majority. But even if you had a nine to one majority, if that one that's against it is Ferrari, they have the power to uh, to, to basically knock back that proposal. They have more. Yeah, that's, yeah. Where, I, that, that's where I disagree with it. Yeah. As a, as a neutral, because, you know, we're talking about the sport going forward being more competitive, but if you've got one team that's able to veto agreements who could benefit their, benefit them compared to other teams, as, as, as a fan, you know, isn't a, a you know, you know, as a, more a, a fan of a sport, to be honest, looking from the outside, that leaves a bit of a bad feeling, to be honest, and, I, and I'm sure a lot of fans of the sport can agree. It's something that gets brought up quite a lot when these um, proposals get raised. When Ferrari tend to be against certain proposals being put forward, whether they're good for the sport or not, of course, it's a matter of perspective, really, depending on which side of the paddock you're on. Quite often, we see publications or team bosses themselves always mentioning this power of veto that Ferrari has. This was something that Bernie Eccleston gave to Ferrari many, many years ago. Um, in a way to try and keep them uh, interested in the sport. Obviously, as a brand ambassador for the sport, as you like, as you know, on top of the financial incentives that they're getting still. And as I said, each time something comes up, the power of veto is mentioned at Ferrari, and it, it tends to be a thing that's usually used against them. I personally, as a Ferrari fan, as I've said on this show, so much for being impartial, I'm not a fan of Ferrari having that much power in Formula One. I think the sport is better 
when you have a united front. I don't think one team should hold any sort of lion's share of at least the power, at least anyway. Uh, the revenues are totally separate things, should be more rewards-based. But there are certain things like those historical bonuses and contributions that Ferrari have put in themselves that I can understand. And other teams have benefited from the past. I mean, Red Bull and Mercedes get a much larger share of the revenue for certain other things, i.e. their recent yeah. success over the last 10 years um, that they've been rewarded for. So I think that's important to mention too. At this point in time, Ferrari seems to be a lot more open to certain changes and proposals. There's probably a lot of this that they could have voted down, but they decided not to. So they're obviously in agreement that change is good for the sport. I think it's been warmed to them since perhaps the death of Sergio Marchionne a few years back. Uh, not to imply that he would have been against it, but these have been discussions that have been going on for a long time. Um, this is kind of the first time all of the teams have really been involved in these discussions and F1 bosses post Bernie Eccleston have kind of sought after a more equitable share of revenue and you know fairness in terms of the regulations to make the sport more competitive and sustainable for the long term in the future and I think we can both agree this is a huge step in the right direction to ensure that that's the case of course we've got the big rule changes coming in 2022 which will push back because of Covid and now this agreement's in place all 10 teams are now committed to the sport. And to be honest, Corny, I'm so glad that's the case because I just cannot see any new teams coming to the sport anytime soon. No. Until it becomes more financially sustainable uh, for newer teams to consider joining. So the last thing we would have wanted is for potentially six or seven cars to sign up and the other three walk away. Uh, teams like Haas, for example, Williams, we weren't sure because of their financial situation and possibly even Mercedes ending up with a 14-car world championship. Nobody wants that. Absolutely. And there are a lot of and there are a lot of big names in the sport at the moment. You know, if you think so, you've got you know Red Bull become established. You've got Mercedes. You've got obviously Ferrari, McLaren, Renault, Williams, even Alfa Romeo are a big name. You want to have like for me personally, I like to see the like the big name, like the big manufacturers, stay in F one because obviously they represent the industry, the motorsport industry. So you want to be seeing. The big name staying, so I'm I'm pleased you, we are going to be retaining teams like Williams going forward because I, I I just think it's important for you know the sport being attractive for new fans, for example. Yeah, I, I just feel it's more difficult for fans to take to like an unknown brand from the start, if that makes sense. And that's why some of the smaller teams that have come in in recent years have struggled to stay in the sport. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I totally agree on that one. So moving on to the next thing, of course, as you mentioned earlier, Corny, we, uh, this week on Friday, Williams announced the sale of the Formula One team to a US investment firm called Doralton Capital. Can't say I've done too much research on these guys. Again, another faux pas. I haven't done much research, but long story short, Williams have managed to finally secure a new owner of this team. Williams, from what I understand, are going to be keeping the naming rights to this. So the team is still going to be branded as Williams Racing, for all I know. Um, it might have some influence or might have some branding with Dalton on top of it. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, Williams are staying in Formula One and they finally secured that long-term investment, which is such good news for the sport. Brilliant, yeah. Williams are a huge part of the F1 heritage. Um, I mean, we can date this back to uh, as, as late, as sorry, as early as 1969, really, where Sir Frank Williams obviously formed Frank Williams Racing Cars in 69 and then changed it to Wolf Williams Racing in uh, 76. Two 
brands that weren't overly successful, but of course, until it became the Williams Racing Team in 1977. And since then, Williams has scored 114 race wins, which is only second to Ferrari, nine World Constructors Championships and seven Drivers World Championships. Obviously, the most recent lows in 1997 with Jack Villeneuve. Despite their shortcomings in over the last two decades, and of course, we had an episode of that where we talked about that in a bit more detail that you guys should definitely check out on the DNF1 F1 podcast channel. It's a good news story for Formula One to keep a team like Williams in the sport. I don't expect there to be too much change in terms to the overall running. As you mentioned, Courtney, the terms of the Concord Agreement, the financial implications of that agreement has managed to help secure this. So what do you think? Is this something that Williams, now they've got this in the bag, is this going to help them in their long-term project to try and move up the grid? Um, or, or... Oh, yeah, I really, I really hope so because whenever I sort of look back at like eras of Formula One, so you know, if I look back particularly, you know, back to the eighties and the nineties, I feel that Williams are synonymous with those eras in Formula One, and they're eras of Formula One that made me fall in love with the sport. And you want you want to see a team like that out there, and also British based based team. Call me biased, but I love to see the British teams do well. You want to see them up there. And I just feel that in the recent, well, three, four years, I just, I don't know, Williams just seem to look like a Mercedes junior team. And I, I, don't, like, I don't like to see that. Um, so I'm just hoping that they are more competitive. And also it just gives the drivers coming in more of an opportunity to, you know, make a name in the sport. It's been frustrating to see see George Russell we know how talented George Russell is he's done so well in F2 and all the other junior categories and it's just it's just a shame to constantly see him at the back you know and he's, he's happy if he hasn't been lapped by the rest of the field you don't want to see that you want to see drivers come in and make their own stories in the sport so I'm hoping that with this newfound investment at Williams hopefully this could be the start of them just even if they're competing with the rest of the midfield it just makes makes the sport a lot more a lot more, you know, entertaining for everyone to watch. Because if you're if you're just if you're Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull, you're happy to see them at the top. But if you're just a neutral fan that just wants to sit down and and enjoy the spectacle itself, it's not fun to see a, a, a team just stranded at the back whilst the others are having fun in midfield, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I hear you. Um it's a really good sign of things going forward for Williams. It's something they've needed to do. They've had a very difficult time. The last few years in this turbo hybrid era, of course, the issues that they had with the 2018 car, sorry, 2019 car, I should say, where they couldn't get it out for testing for the first couple of days because of delays getting the parts over and obviously the difficulties that Claire Williams has inherited after taking over the team running duties over from her father, Sir Frank. It's been very difficult for Williams. They posted losses of around, I think it was £13 million in 2019 for the financial year. And I think COVID has kind of escalated this situation where they were looking for this long-term investment to secure the team's future. They finally found that. So I'm hoping now this is a big turning point for Williams. So we've seen improvements from them. They're now competing with the rest of the field. They're not just reserving the the bottom two places in the field to finish last they now are able to race George Russell as you've mentioned has been brilliant especially in qualifying he needs to try and convert that a bit more in the race but nonetheless 
his base is there for everyone to see for the next year or two that he's committed to the team. So Just I'm hoping, yeah. To get that first point, though. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm almost criminal that a driver of his ability is yet to score a point in Formula One. That, that's what I'm trying. That's what I was trying to allude to earlier on. Yeah, no, it's something that has eluded him. But I think this is something that only really is a thing for me because Robert Kubica got that tenth place in Germany in that really crazy yeah. race, and unfortunately George would have got that if it wasn't for issues he had with the car towards the end of it. So it is a bit of a monkey on his back that he needs to get off. Um, pardon the phrasing, but he will. I'm sure in due course, get something. Whether it's at Williams or whether he moves somewhere else to get it, I mean, George is too good of a driver. I mean, we're talking about a guy that could be potentially a world champion in the future. So I think we need to just see it for what it is and then not to think too much about the fact that he hasn't got a point yet. So those things will come. But it is hard when someone as talented as him is struggling at the back and then you've got Lando Norris and Alex Albon fighting for points and podiums uh, who come from the same... Uh, same uh, crop of junior categories as him, and of course Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc as well in the same position. Mm. You've got the next golden generation. That's what I call them. Yes, yeah, definitely the next golden generation. So moving on to the obviously the next thing, we've had some news about circuits. So of course the Formula One Canada now has been adding circuits throughout the season. We started off with eight, then we've had a few more, then we've had a few more. I think we're up to about fourteen or fifteen now, but. Um, mm. We know that there's going to be races towards the end of the season outside of Europe in particular. We know there's most likely going to be a race in Bahrain, maybe a double header there. And of course, the season finale in Abu Dhabi. One race that's been touted quite a lot, that's triggered a lot of interest, particularly mine in particular, is the return of the Turkish Grand Prix. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> no, the Turkish Grand Prix has not been on the calendar, I think, since 2008 or 2009. Uh, actually, no, tell a lie. It's 2010. No, 2010 was the last time, I believe. Was it 2010 or 2012? I think... Oh, I what was it? Did, the, the, the race I remember most was when... Uh, I, think it was, I think it was 2010. I think 2010 was the last Turkish Grand Prix. Don't quote me on this, guys. Of course, if I'm wrong, please feel free to leave a comment on the video uh, on YouTube to uh, let me know if I'm wrong on this. But I believe it was 2010 where we had that famous incident between Mark Webb and Sebastian Vettel coming right. together. But... Turkey is a very, very interesting track. It's one the drivers have always talked highly of. Of course, there were financial issues from the local uh, government as to why they couldn't continue to host this race. But now that we're in this crazy COVID season, the opportunity does seem to be presenting itself to host another race at Turkey. And I, for one, would be absolutely delighted to have another race at the Istanbul Park. Of course, seeing the cars go through, especially the modern-day cars. I mean, considering the improvements in grip and downforce that we're seeing compared to 10 years ago with the many rule changes we've had, it's going to be interesting to see how the cars get on there if we do go racing there. It's particularly, of course, the famous Turn 8, the quadruple apex left-hander. I mean, today's Formula 1 cars will absolutely make mincemeat of that. I'm absolutely certain of it. It'd be good to see. It's, it, that was that was that's the uh, that that corner. Like you know, you always get like you get those those videos and you get the theories. Like if you put like all the parts of your favourite circuits in the world into one circuit, turn eight in Turkey would definitely make it for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and of course, plenty of overtaking opportunities on their track, particularly at the last corner. I mean, DRS mm-hmm. in that long straight up to that. Uh, last couple of corners that would just cause so much havoc. I mean, the slipstreaming as well was almost havoc. So, can you imagine adding DRS to that equation as well, and of course, into turn one? But again, a very good track, and it was a happy hunting ground for Felipe Massa. I, I don't know if um, did Lewis Hamilton ever win there? 
I think he won the, in the GP2. 2010 race. Oh, of course. He, no, you're right. He won. did. Yeah. Yes, yes, he did. Oh, my God. I'm getting all my facts out of place. Yes, Lewis Hamilton has won there. Yeah. So I was thinking if you Lewis Hamilton... Day, Adam, don't worry. <laughs> I was just wondering if Lewis had won there, but not what, but not in Formula 1, but in GP2. Uh, I yeah, remember watching him there. in GP2, watching one, one of the races where he had to pit coming through the back of the field and he pa- literally passed everyone on the way to winning that race. Um, yeah, that was GP2. Yeah, so, but no, Lewis has definitely won in Turkey. I've uh, just got to get my facts right on this one. <laughs> but again, I'd absolutely love to see Turkey back. And of course, it's just rumours at this point, guys. So don't get massively excited like me. I'm hearing stories and given the way this season has gone, some of the stories about circuits, I've sort of felt that these stories do tend to come to fruition more often than not, particularly with new circuits being included. So um, hopefully that happens. We'll have to wait and see. I must, I must say, though, Adam, one of the things about Turkey, I remember um, the company that currently, yeah, that, that currently make the Formula One games, I think the first game they've done, Codemasters, that's right. First, the first um, game they've done was F1 2010, right? Yes. Oh, well, t- and, on the PlayStation, yes, and Xbox. That's right. It was 2009 um, on the Wii. Bar and Turkey were easily my favourite circuits. It, it's a genuinely enjoyable circuit. Yeah. No, the, you're right. Yeah. On, on the game. So I can imagine how much the, um, the drivers enjoy actually racing on it. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, I think we won't talk much about the 2009 game on the Wii. I mean, that was absolutely dreadful. But uh, nobody's perfect. Codemasters obviously saw what went wrong and then went all ham on the new models on the next-gen console. So uh, glad they did. Um, but that's a good. I think that's a good time to end part one. So uh, in this little break, guys, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, we're just going to put a little plug for the new F1 2020 My Team series that we've got coming for you on the channel very, very soon. And after that, we will join you for part two. So welcome back for part two of the DNF1 F1 podcast. If you're new to the F1 podcast here at DNF1, just a, a reminder to make sure to like, share and subscribe if you're enjoying it so far on the YouTube channel. That's DNF1-F1 podcast. And of course, if you're listening to us on your favourite podcasting platform, make sure to like and follow us as well. All your support is really greatly appreciated. And we're hitting milestones all the time, guys. So keep helping us out. And of course, follow us on social media as well, on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is dnf one underscore podcast. And if you don't have those and follow us on Facebook, then... Leave a comment on the YouTube channel. Leave a comment on the Twitter and Instagram. Tell us if you know to get a Facebook. If it's really worth the while, we'll set a page up for that as well. So uh, thanks again for your support on that one. So I'd also like to say, Adam. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> no, no, no. Go for it. Go for it. Um, I've noticed that you've been a lot more active with your your Twitter because Adam runs the, the the DNF1 Twitter account, and Adam's doing a lot of good stuff on there. So please do give it a follow because he's doing a lot of good stuff and uh, I want it to get the recognition it deserves. So yeah, go and give it a follow. Well, I'm trying to be a bit more active on there because I think it's fair to say that before recently, nobody was running that Twitter page <laughs> other <No>. than <laughs> me using it to, to uh, advertise the uh, episodes a bit further. But yeah, I'm going to try and engage on that a bit more, guys. So if you do follow us on Twitter, I do apologise for not being active on it much, but we're going to be a lot more active over the race weekends and of course, any news updates that we have for you that's coming from the Formula One world. So anywho, we're moving along. Speaking of the Formula 1 world, even though it's not race week this weekend, with the exception of the Indy 500, it's race week next week. Obviously, the next triple header that we've got coming, starting in Spa, Fragment Shorts in Belgium, a track you and I, Courtney, have been to, and of course, one that we hold very dear to our hearts, of course, one of the favourites on the Formula 1 calendar, one of the jewels of the Formula 1 calendar, if you like, as well. First things first, the question on everybody's lips is, given the nature of the circuit, 
where high speed is going to be a priority, especially down the hangar straight after Rouge and Radion. Do we expect anybody to stop the Mercedes, or are we expecting this to be another showdown between Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton? What I find quite interesting about this weekend is that this is the first weekend, I believe, that the new rule is coming in about the um, the party mode that Mercedes were running. Ah, well... ...has been outlawed, hasn't it? Sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I, I just to mention it. Um, so, yeah, you were you was right, technically, but they've now pushed that back to the Italian race. Oh, um, really? So, yeah, this week they'd announced uh, that this was... Only just a couple of days ago, they announced that this is going to be pushed back to the Italian Grand Prix. So, um, I'm not sure why in particular, but... Um, for whatever reason, it, it's now the removal of party mode, if you like, that we talked about in last week's episode um, in qualifying in the race, the parity of engine modes, if you like. That's now going to happen in Italy. So that's happening in two weeks' time. Uh, Belgium is just going to be business as usual on that front. Then it's going to be very difficult for... I can't, I can't, I can't imagine anything apart from a, a Mercedes 1-2 in this circuit. This, this, this has Mercedes written all over it. But then... I thought the same thing about Silverstone, and look what happened in the second race there. So, don't want to completely rule it out, but um, I, I, fan, I fancy Lewis Valtteri and maybe a racing point trying to overtake the two Mercedes when they um, slipstream them up the, uh, the the camel strike. That's yeah, why I see that race starting. I, I'm thinking somewhere on similar lines to you on that one. Uh, I'm trying to even now. I'm trying to figure out in my head which one it's going to be. That uh, out of the two racing points, of course that's going to be uh, finishing on the podium. As I said, I think this is going to be another race where we're going to see not necessarily a boring masterclass. I don't know if that's fair to say, but I believe that unless Valtteri pulls something out of the bag, which, to be honest, has been long overdue since his initial win in Austria earlier in the season, I can't see past Lewis Hamilton controlling this race once again. He enjoys racing in Belgium. He's won there a few times. It's not always been the easiest of tracks for him, given famous performances, of course, 2014, where he had that incident with Nico Rosberg and um, has gone toe-to-toe with Sebastian Vettel for a couple of years back in 2017 and 18. So, And, of course, 2019, where Charles Leclerc won his first race for Ferrari. So it's going to be a very interesting weekend for a lot of reasons. But I just can't see anybody really taking Lewis Hamilton's... Uh, well, taking the top spot off of Lewis Hamilton and denting his otherwise perfect form at the moment. I think a lot, of, a lot of it's going to come down to that that first lap. I think it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, because even if Valtteri gets pole, Lewis can just get him on the on the long straight at the start. You've got the possibility of the racing points, and also you don't know how they're going to set up the red ball. They might set up the red ball to be ultra fast on that on that long straight and be slower in the corners, you don't know. They might set up particularly for that scenario just to get ahead of the Mercedes. But if it comes down, it, it, and it could come down a strategy. And also, with, with Spa, it's a bit of a, um, if you don't know the area, it is, uh, they have a bit of a microclimate there. So it could be a perfectly sunny day, and then a few minutes later, you have showers rolling over. So that, could, uh, that always spices up races at Spa when it happens. Yeah, it's a very unique circuit layout, especially the revised version since the 80s, when obviously it was deemed a bit too dangerous from the old format. I mean, could you imagine Formula 1 cars racing on the old Spa layout? It would be something to see. Probably something you only see on um, YouTube, uh, YouTube F1 drivers or uh, racing YouTubers, uh, models that we're going to try and become on all of that. But... Um, 
it's the only thing you sort of see on their channels. But nonetheless, I you're absolutely right to point that out, Corny. I think the run down the Camel Strait, going up through Oruj and Radion into Lake Holmes Corner, that's going to be where the race could potentially be won and lost. And I think you're right to point out that pole position can tend to be a poison chalice in that race because, of course, you've got yeah. the issues with dealing with drivers behind you, slipstreaming you. I mean, was it 2017 where they had as much as five or six cars all trying to fight for the lead on the first lap? I think you had the two Ferraris, the two Mercedes, and you had the racing points. Uh, yeah, back... the racing points yeah. seem to be there. Even when I went in... Um... When I went in 2015, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, Rosberg started second. That's right. Lewis started off on par. Rosberg had a slow start. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's it. Lewis is um, long gone. And then um, it went around and uh, went up went up long straight. And one of the racing points, so it would have been Paul Cindy at the time, almost overtook him. And I thought, oh, here we go. It's going to be one of those races. Trust me to go to a race where it's going to be chaotic. <laughs> but it does. It does. But it does, though. It does. It does throw those surprises. And let's not forget, there are usually safety cars at Spa as well. So it might all be done after Turn 1. You might you might have Lewis might be going comfortably in the race. And then before you know it, there's a safety car. And then he has to defend it all over again. Yeah, there's always a safety car usually at Spa. It's almost a guarantee. I mean, when I went in 2001, there was one. But, of course, that was for an incident involving Luciano Berti and the old Prost team where he went into the wall at the end of Puong and... Um, that was a bad crash because that took him out for a few races after that. Uh, it was also the race where Fernando Alonso in the Minardi uh, technically got a did not start because he wasn't able to rejoin when the race had to be restarted. So um, it always throws up surprises. It always throws up action. I can't remember a race where it's been boring at Spa. I mean, no. there's so many exciting incidents and races. Of course, it's the scene where, in my opinion, the greatest overtake of all time in 2000 where... Mika Hakkinen overtook Michael Schumacher by going by splitting Ricardo Zonta as they were both lapping him and then using the inside to get into Lacon first. It's an absolute genius piece of racing driving between two of the sport's all-time greats at the same time. And uh, I, actually, I, I actually watched it today. Come off yes. my YouTube and it is. I'm, I'm going to sound really nerdy, but it's just a really satisfying overtake. Oh, can you, can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> I mean. We see overtakes done that are really, really good ones. Some that Daniel Ricciardo pulls off. And I think there was one in Monza he did on Raikkonen. And then he started doing the rock-on sign with his hand, um, with his left hand as he was going through uh, the, ca- uh, the Grand Curve uh, at 200 miles an hour because that's what you can do in Formula 1 these days. But um, back then, yeah, Mika, obviously in a much more difficult car to handle at the time, respectively, uh, relatively speaking, I should say. And uh, the satisfaction must have been in that helmet of his when he did that move on Schumacher was pretty special. The fact they still talk about it today, I mean, not just us, I mean, they're always asking Mika about that move, and um, I think at the time, probably not something Michael would have been happy to talk about, but a lot of respect nonetheless. But there's been so many great moments at Spa. It's a race I'm certainly looking forward to. Um, I think we should move on to Red Bull in that regard. How do we think their weekend's going to pan out? Because they were strong in the second race at Silverstone. They made changes to the car to make it more aerodynamically efficient on the straights it was a lot more competitive Max was able to live with the Mercedes at Silverstone on a track where arguably it's probably more suited to a streamlined car than perhaps Spa is of course the middle sector of Spa is very much a chassis and aero favouring section so if Red Bull can live with Mercedes on the straights maybe which and that's a big if they might have half a chance in the race if they work if it works out well for them in the corners 
it all comes down to um, to the temperatures and the tyre allocations because Mercedes did dominate the first race of Silverstone. Let's not forget that. They yeah. dominated the first race where it was slightly cooler and the tyres were harder. So it does. It does. It definitely depends on the tyres and the weather. But, you know, as we've just been discussing about this circuit, there is a reason. If you are new to the sport, there is a good reason why me and Adam fanboy over this circuit. Trust me. There are so many things that make this race one of the most entertaining circuits, if not the most entertaining circuit in the um, F1 calendar. I think one thing the teams are going to be grateful for, unlike in previous races where the calendar has kind of shifted the timing of certain events, is that the Belgian Grand Prix happening this weekend coming, it's usually around about the same sort of time that it happens on a normal F1 calendar. I think it's about a week ahead. So the weather's not going to be that much different. And the teams will be grateful for that because of previous years of uh, data that they can collate and use to prepare their strategies more efficiently. So I don't think we're going to get a bonkers race like we saw in Silverstone for either the British or the 70th anniversary race. And I don't think we're going to see a race where the teams are going to struggle to handle the conditions that were put on them at the Spanish Grand Prix, which led to the boar fest that we saw. But nonetheless, it's not going to be predictable by any means. And I think... In Max Verstappen's hands, it's an opportunity to see if they can handle it. I think they're still probably the best team to beat Mercedes, despite what we said about Racing Point. And it's a year to the day, well, not to the day exactly, but a year to when Alex Albon made his debut in Red Bull. So now, obviously, they've had a year to assess his driving. He had a difficult qualifying in that race, but he did a good performance in the race to get back into the top six. So for Alex Albon, obviously... Big race for him and uh, big opportunity now. He needs to start performing because uh, Red Bull might be looking at alternatives. I mean, Gasly's doing very, very well in the Alpha Tauri. Yuki Sonoda in Formula 2 uh, recently won. Hulkenberg's well, always there. Hulkenberg, Mr. Reliable, Hulkenberg. Yeah. Is an option. Hulkenberg is an option. Um, I don't know if Red Bull would go for Hulkenberg. Maybe they'd probably try to promote one of their own. I mean, as I said, I mean, I mentioned Yuki Tsunoda. I think it might be too soon to consider that a jump of that scale, and I don't think he's done anywhere near enough to make them think that Alex Albon should be replaced by him. Not that I think Albon should be replaced. If it was me, I'd keep him on a bit longer for at least another year. But there's certainly a more amicable position, and certainly more, um, it, certainly a more appealing position, I suppose, Red Bull have in terms of their drivers that they have available. As I said, Hulkenberg can be an option, you've rightly mentioned, and... I don't see Hulkenberg coming back to Formula 1 unless it's a reasonably good team. I think Alfa Romeo, as I said, I think that seat, Raikkonen's seat, is going to be uh, taken by a potential driver from F2 from the Ferrari Academy, even though they already have Giovinazzi. Huss, I just can't see Huss, uh, Hulkenberg wanting to come to Huss. I think you showed me something from uh, the F1 World podcast um, on YouTube as well that was talking about this as well. And I agree, I, I think Hulkenberg is probably looking, if he was to return to Formula 1, to at least be competing in the midfield. I don't think he'd want to be at the back. So there are limited options on that. I don't know if Red Bull would be so bold as to go for Hulkenberg. Um, But you never know. I've seen stranger things in Formula 1, and you never know. Um, Moving on from Red Bull, one team that I think you and I will probably feel is going to be one of their more difficult weeks, and I think this is going to be a period where they may struggle a lot more than they have done already, is Ferrari. And I think purely and simply that's because we've seen this season that Ferrari's biggest problem has been the fact that their engine 
so mighty last year, has now been downgraded to comply with what is perceived to be the F1 rules, implying that Ferrari were not exactly following them in the right way last season with the fuel flow situation and the controversy that followed that. But are we expecting Ferrari to even be competing in the points this weekend? Is Would you say that's probably a fair assessment of where they are on this track? I mean, it's possible for them to... Um not score any points I, I feel that you know you, you just touched on it a bit yourself it would be it's going to be quite a telling moment because last year it was the it was the engine power that won them that race with Charles Leclerc mm. they just had that that edge over Mercedes for Lewis to not be able to overtake Charles yeah and that's what won them the race in the end and, and it'd just be very I don't know it, it'll represent won't it the fall from grace with with uh, Ferrari's engine power to see them struggling. Yeah, but with with Charles Leclerc, with him, with him being as with, as confident as he is, you know, he's he, he is the Max Verstappen of Ferrari, and he, you know, he'll he'll find a way to get some points for the team. So Vettel might have another difficult weekend, but if all goes smoothly, they they'll they'll probably be at the lower end of the uh, the point scoring. I'd say with Charles, fingers crossed. Anyway. Yeah, I think this is going to be a weekend where the Mercedes teams and the Honda Power teams are going to do well this weekend. Ferrari may most likely struggle. And hopefully for them, they'll sort themselves out in terms of strategy because I think they were very fortunate that Sebastian Vettel managed to get that seventh place. And of course, Charles Leclerc was driving a fine race until the electrical issues took him out. So I think we're just looking at the time now. It's almost time to wrap this up for this week. I'm going to push you for a prediction, Courtney. We're going to go with our top three, as we often do, for race preview. So, who's going to be your top three in your mind for this weekend's race? I would say I'm going to go with the traditional top three of Lewis Valtteri and Max. But this is a massive weekend for Valtteri. We're running out of races now, and he has to bounce back. So, I'm, I'm going to give Valtteri a chance for this one. I'm going to go with Valtteri first, Lewis second, and Max third. Because if Valtteri doesn't do it in the next race or so, this championship's already over. So you don't think a racing point's going to be on the podium then? If there isn't any problems with the with the two Mercedes and and Max, because Ma- Max always finds a way to get that red ball on the podium, doesn't he? Regardless of the circuit layout. Yeah. So I'm going to go with Valtteri. Yeah, Valtteri, Lewis, and Max. What about you, Adam? Uh, oh, I'm going to keep mine short and sweet. Um, I'm going to go with Lewis to win, Valtteri second, and I'm going to go with Lance Stroll to come third. Mm, I think Lance has been performing very very well in the uh, racing point it performed very well again in uh, in Spain of course Perez got that penalty making that one stop work but Lance has shown a lot of good pace in that racing point and I just think at the moment whilst Perez is still recovering following the, the, the Covid situation he went through I just think Lance has really honed his craft in his car and he's finding his rhythm and I think we're starting to see what he is all about do I think he's going to challenge Mercedes absolutely not I just think that this track is really going to suit the Mercedes runners very, very well. And I think that's going to benefit them against uh, Red Bull. So if Max is going to finish on the podium, I think he's going to need a bit of fortune. I just don't think the car and the engine, at least in my opinion, is suited to this sort of track more than Mercedes is. So I'm going to go with Hamilton, Bottas and Stroll. And I think you're right to point out with the Bottas situation, he's running out of races. I mean, the good news for Bottas is it looks like more races are going to be added to the calendar. But you're right, I think he's running out of opportunities to kind of kickstart his championship. And he always seems to have this thing where he starts the season really, really strong. 
like he's reinvented himself, Valtteri 2.0, 3.0, however many you want. And then almost immediately, he just falls away, like he falls back into Hamilton's pocket, if you like. And I know that's a bit harsh, but Hamilton just seems to have him covered off all the time. He, you know, And it seems to be happening earlier and earlier every year now. Lewis does tend to have a very good, well, it would traditionally say a European season, but Lewis does tend to start a season slowly, does well in the midsection of the season, and tells off once he wins the championship. So maybe this could be, without being too harsh on Valtteri, it does seem that when Valtteri has a good weekend, is it more of a case of Lewis having a slow weekend by his usual standards? Hmm. And I think if things are going to change, he's going to have to have that a lot more that's, in his favour. But let's hope he does. Let's hope he pulls it together and really makes this interesting. I mean, we, you know, the best driver win, but we want to see this go to the very end, of course. So uh, I think that's a good time to wrap up the end of this podcast, guys. So uh, I think we've managed to time this rather well. Not too much time wasted on that one. But uh, once again, Courtney, thank you very, very much for offering your expert insight and joining us on another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. It's always a pleasure, mate, and uh, look forward to talking about, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, a very entertaining race at Spa. Yeah, absolutely, guys. And uh, once again, just to remind you guys that if you are new to the DNF1 F1 podcast channel, if you watch us on YouTube, make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the channel. We've got more content coming out soon that we're looking forward to. And of course, if you follow us and listen to us on your favourite podcasting platform, make sure to like and follow us on there. Keep supporting us. We absolutely love you guys for it and we love in making content. And this is the 25th episode. So we're now a, a quarter of a century in in terms of our episodes. I never thought we'd get this far in such a short time. We only started this around February. But uh, nonetheless, it's been a fun journey so far. And I think Courtney will agree with me that we're looking forward to the very, very next phases of that and where we go with this. We've got a lot of exciting things coming up. We've got um, got your gaming channel to look forward to. Of course, of course. And, um, and don't forget to watch our, um, our F1 Beginners, guys. For any of you that haven't understood half of what we've been saying during this episode, or any terms or um, don't get anything about strategy... Do uh, do watch those videos. Adam's done a great job with the uh, with the editing and the, and the videos to make it a lot more understandable. So do give them a, a listen. Let us know what you think, and hopefully you'll understand the jargon that comes out of our mouths from now on. <laughs> well, I'd certainly like to think so. That'd be an achievement in its own right. But uh, obviously, guys, if you, if you're following us on Instagram and Twitter, thank you so much. If you're not, make sure to follow us on those platforms on social media and engage with us as well because we are active on there. Uh, at least I yeah. certainly am now on Twitter. Courtney's always active on Instagram, but uh, it's DNF one underscore podcast on both of those. So make sure to follow us and say hi to us on that. And uh, with all that being said, it's time to wrap up this episode of the DNF one podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you in the next DNF one F one podcast. See you soon. Podcast Network.